It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm doing all right. Training, teaching, living life, I guess. Doing the thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I struggled coming up with a uh, name, a title for this podcast, because it's like an update of our up-to-date article. It's like, dude, I got trapped in our own sentence structure. It's like the update of the up-to-date. It's like too many dates, too many ups. I think, like, I I think Exhibit hopped down here to help us with things. <laughs> Yo, dog, I heard you like updates, so we're going to update you up-to-date. Yeah, all right. It's, but it's like if it's two ups, does that make it down? Are we in the upside-down world? Like, and is it... <sighs> anyway. Anyway, moving on. Uh, this podcast brought to you by Pioneer Belts. You can check them out over at generalleathercraft.com. They make custom belts. They have already ready-made belts in any size that you want. Uh, so you can get a custom tailored to your waist size, the right thickness, the right width, single prong, double prong, levers. They also make uh, wrist wraps, wrist straps. They got it. You know what I'm trying to get them to make? Golf head club like covers. Because mm. they're, doing, they're doing leather stuff, and I'm like, man we could come up with some custom head covers. I don't think it'd be a big ticket item. You know, I don't know that the crossover between like lifters and, and golf has really reached that Zenith yet, but, uh, yeah, no, good. It seems like they have the technology. They have the technology. Also, I feel like he's, he sent me a picture of some stuff that he made for himself just because if you can work with leather, I feel like you just start making leather stuff and be like, like he's probably not making belts right now. He's probably making holiday gifts for people out of leather. He's like, yo, I may do this special notebook, you know, cover or whatever out of leather. And they're like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah, well, I'm a leather worker. It's just what I do. Yeah. <laughs> it's just what I do. Uh, but yeah, definitely check them out and and let them know that you're listening to the Barbell Medicine podcast and that you, you heard it uh, on our podcast. Really like to make sure that people are aware that they're helping us out and uh, yeah, hopefully outsource some of this production stuff and we can just keep doing more podcasts rather than like spend a lot of time editing and whatnot. You know, uh, on our YouTube, I, I had batch produced all of these YouTube videos so we could like release them. And, uh, I am not an audio technician. I'm not an audio professional. It, this may surprise everyone listening to this, uh, that I'm not an audio professional and no point during medical school or my MBA or my master's or undergrad. Was there any like audio <laughs> <laughs> engineering course? I messed up the sound levels for the intro. The intro on the, some of these YouTube videos are way too loud. It's like all the way up to zero dBs, whereas the rest of the video has been mastered to negative three dBs. So people are like getting blasted with sound on the intro, mm. and then they're like, ooh, it doesn't match. I'm like, I know now, but I can't go back. YouTube's not letting me like adjust that. So you can blame it on YouTube. You can blame it on my lack of experience, but don't blame it on Pioneer because they're helping us out, and hopefully <laughs> <laughs> we can uh, outsource some of this stuff. So make sure you let them know that you heard about them here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. And uh, I think, hey, did we lift the same weight, same amount of weight today? I saw that you also did squats. I yeah, I squatted 220 my... kilos. Ooh. I, wanna, I think you did 225. I just want to say. <laughs> well, so I had not been able to put a straight bar on my back without like pretty significant discomfort uh, for about eight weeks now. Um, just when I messed up my other shoulder, it just wasn't. Mm -hmm. I could like make myself do it, but then I was like, why? I'm like pulling sure. out of this meat. Yeah. So um, yeah, put a bar on my back. No discomfort. I wasn't trying it every session because the safety squat bar squat, it's fine. And uh, yeah, loaded up 495, did four sets of five with it because, you know, whatever. Uh, but training's going well on your end? Things are going It's going right. fine. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like putting too much uh, pressure on myself for it. I'm just kind of like gliding along and taking whatever's there on a, on a given day. Everything is feeling fine, except uh, my left elbow is a little sensitive again, which it tends to do periodically over the past 10 years or whatever. So sure. whenever it decides to chill out again, my, my bench will get back on track. But everything else, I'm just, you know, going in, hitting pretty conservative, you know, RPE targets and, and things are trending back up again as my like powerlifting interest gradually comes back online, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Somebody asked me if I was planning on a meet at some point, like, do I have a meet scheduled? And I was like, nope, yeah. I don't have, I don't have that. Even though I feel relatively strong right now and like the movements that I'm doing, I just, just still don't have that yeah. desire to compete. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, also like, I, I just don't want to show up to a meet and just lift weights either. Like for me at this point in my competitive career, uh, if anyway, uh, oh, Hey, speaking of videos, because I saw your, I saw that on your story, 220 mm. kilos. And I was like, mm, I did 225 today. <laughs> uh, 
if you guys have technique videos and you want us to review them on your on our YouTube channel, send them to us. Send them to media at barbellmedicine.com. Here are the rules. You, you got to do it landscape, long ways. Do not send me a vertical video. I don't want that. Also, please do not send me a single repetition. If it's a single, like what am I, what am I supposed to do with that? I can coach a single. I would just prefer not to. So uh, send me a multi-rep set of squat, bench, deadlift, or press. Look, people can send press videos. Austin, if you had to guess, what are the most common technique videos that I get sent at mediabarbellmedicine.com? Um, maybe some sort of variation on the main lift to ask if they're doing the variation correctly. That'd be my guess. I don't know. They're all squats. They're all oh, really? They're, yeah, people are just like, can you check out my squat? And by and large, they look fine. There are some like efficiency gains to be made, certainly, you know, that I that I think we could do. But like, I'm like, hey, there are deadlifts too. Deadlifts are, are lifts too. <laughs> Send us a bench press. Bench press is cool. You get to lay down. You get to lay, you're, al- anyway, you guys get it. Send us a video, mediabarbellmedicine.com, multi-rep set, film at landscape. Uh, and then, you know, maybe we'll put on the YouTube channel and you get a free technique check. Uh, if okay. anyone wants to throw in a swimming video or something, I'm happy to chime in, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I will. Yeah, I will just delete that. There's no way, <laughs> no chance, no chance. Uh, okay. Well, this week's podcast, episode 203 brought to you again by pioneer belts, uh, our original up-to-date article, well, it was split into two. So one was like strength training and its impact on in primary care. And the second one was practical guidelines for implementing a strength training program for adults. Um, we basically had to go through and add a few sections and update a few sections. And so we do this periodical, periodically, um, at least once a year, sometimes more often, if our editor sort of gets wind of some emerging research or something. Um, but by and large, uh, most of the emerging research tends to strengthen what we've already said. So it's just like an additional citation or additional sentence. These are, in addition to like two wholesale, like new sections, some of them are actual updates. And uh, so we're going to talk about uh, updated protein recommendations and what harms, if any, are there of high intakes of dietary protein. We're going to talk about injury risk of resistance training. I know everyone's been waiting for this. We could definitely do a whole series of podcasts on that. So it's not going to be the, you know, magnus opus of injury risk and resistance training but we'll have a good discussion we're gonna talk about migraines and resistance training and uh you know if the if you didn't have a migraine before this podcast certainly by the time we get to that part you'll probably be feeling some pulsating uh, sensations in your uh in your head and then finally we're gonna talk about some objective strength targets which i believe we've talked about them a little bit on the podcast before but these are a little more refined um and so yeah let's uh let's pop into it so let's start off with protein recommendations and harm. So we had a section um, in the text that basically said as follows, uh, based on the sum of the available evidence, we recommend the consumption of between 1.6 and 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight per day of dietary protein with a maximum suggested dose of 250 grams for those participating in strength training programs. It is reasonable to use total body weight to estimate protein requirements. Contrary to widely held assumptions, this level of protein intake does not harm the healthy kidney. Deriving protein intake from a variety of plant sources, fish, and other unprocessed animal sources does not appear to increase health risks, and ensuring an adequate overall dosage of intake will optimize muscle protein accretion in response to training. And honestly, I'm still fine with that in general. I think the problem is that maybe we were lacking some additional info on, okay, yeah, but I still hear that there are risks of taking a high amount of protein, particularly animal derived protein. So can you expand upon that? Would you agree that that's probably the biggest sort of adjustment, uh, along with maybe the actual amounts? Yeah, that's what actually prompted the kind of editor to, to talk with us about this. I guess they received a question from a reader relating to concerns about not just the amount, but also, you know, are there potential health risks? There's a ton of, you know, discussion in the uh, nutrition world and, and epidemiolo- epidemiology world uh, around whether, dietary protein in general or animal derived protein in particular increases certain health risks. And they basically asked us to address that. Is this a real concern? Is it not a real concern? Do the risks outweigh the benefits? Do the benefits outweigh the risks? What, what do you think? And so that's kind of where we had to come out on this. Do you think that email, like they set it to up to date, you know, editor of this section and they said protein intake thoughts (laughs) and just like linked maybe a paper that shows some concern. Uh, 
Probably not. It's probably a more articulated question than that. But I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Okay, so let's start. Let's start out with amount of protein. So again, the original text says one point six to two point two grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And you know, if your metric to uh, uh, English units are you know if those are handy, that ends up being about a gram of protein per pound body weight. Per day, which has been the rule, so to speak, for years and years and years. We got, I got an old YouTube video from like 2017 on the channel where I said, you know, a gram per pound is fine. And, and I that's got not even an old. That's not even an old video. That recommendation's been around for <laughs> way longer than that. <laughs> I, yeah, that's what's right. But I got yeah. roasted for that in the comments because they're like, "No, oh, that's you know outdated." Blah blah blah. I'm like, mm, it's still like within the, a reasonable sure. recommendation range. But we're gonna yeah. add some nuance to that. So, and in fact. We're going to go lower. We're going to go lower. All right, Baraki. So convince the audience and convince me that lowering that minimum amount of uh, protein per day is uh, okay. So right now it's 1.6. You say go lower. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I think that for most folks in this scene, the recommendation that we had previously put into the article was based off of um, a pretty widely cited um, meta-analysis from Morton in, in 2018, where they basically um, purport, you know, suggested that there was an, in, in, you know, an increasing effect of increasing dietary protein up to around this 1.6 gram per kilo per day threshold, and it kind of tapered off a bit. Um, beyond that, such that that became like the effective minimum that most people would aim to hit. And then in certain situations, you could justify cranking it up substantially higher, which we've talked about in, in previous videos, people who are, you know, highly competitive bodybuilders, super lean, dieting down for a show, et cetera, et cetera, that you could, you could pump it higher. The, the, the reason that we are potentially revising the lower limit of this is not so much out of concern for risk. It's more so out of uh, a couple things. One is simple practicality, um, and in particular, practicality for the intended audience of this up-to-date article. Mm, <laughs> so the, the, yeah. these articles that we wrote are intended to be referenced by clinicians, like doctors who are seeing patients in clinic and trying to make recommendations and things like that. And these are then, therefore, recommendations that are being conveyed to regular folks. They're not being conveyed to highly competitive lifters, people who are super motivated to get as jacked as possible, as lean as possible, etc. These are gen pop people. Um, and so when looking at um, this data overall, including from that Morton paper, like if you actually look at the scatter plot, like the, the points mm -hmm. on the line, once you get above the 1.2 gram per kilo per day threshold, there is not like this super, super convincing, you know, evidence of dramatically, you know, lar uh, uh, larger effects at much higher protein uh, levels of intake. And a more recent uh, meta-analysis by, I guess it's Nunes or Nunes is less likely pronunciation, Nunes. but Send it, you know, it doesn't. <laughs> in uh, February 2022, Journal of Cachexia, Sarcopenia, and Muscle, they basically found, had somewhat similar findings such that there's probably a small benefit to getting over that 1.6 gram per kilo per day threshold in terms of like, quote unquote, optimizing outcomes, even though we don't love that word op optimizing, but there's probably a small effect of getting over that. But the magnitude of that effect is pretty small compared with just getting to, you know, 1.2 or higher. In other words, you know, for the population that we're talking to and about in this article, um, do I have reason to believe that if one of these patients who's in a clinic that we're trying to convince to start exercising, that if they are consuming 1.2 or, you know, 1.3 grams per kilo per day of protein compared to 1.6 or 1.7, are they going to have like markedly worse outcomes alongside their training? Uh, I do not feel like that is likely to be the case. I think that the um, effect, the difference in effect that you get between those thresholds is pretty small. It is something that is more likely going to quote unquote matter for people again, who are in this scene, who are, you know, super interested in, in, in training all the time, getting super lean, getting super jacked, less relevant for people uh, in the quote unquote real world <laughs> out there who are, who, for whom that's not as much of a concern. I don't think that the difference, say, between 1.3 and 1.6 or 7 or whatever number above that you want to take is going to be the difference between a person having sarcopenia and frailty or not, for right, sure. Yeah. Because I think sarcopenia and frailty are overwhelmingly 
you know, conditions that result from physical inactivity much more so than they result from somebody consuming 1.3 instead of 1.7 grams per kilo of protein per day. Most of those patients are probably consuming well below the RDA of protein, less than the 0.8 that is typically recommended because of their, you know, be it lack of appetite, chronic diseases that also suppress their appetite, potentially some depression, other things like that, that also suppress their appetite. And so, so I would prefer a reasonable, practical kind of bottom end of that range. And then the other aspect of this is that historically, we may have erred on the higher side of recommendations out of concern for this phenomenon of anabolic resistance. And we've, we've talked about this before, but anabolic resistance is this idea that in certain situations, people will respond less robustly to anabolic stimuli, be it training, be it protein etc. Mm-hmm. If they are older, if they are sicker, more medical problems, you know, more sedentary, et cetera, et cetera. And to an ex- and, and to some degree that's true. But I think that our goal and, and the whole aim of this entire article series is we're trying to get people training. And to the extent that people are training, and they don't even have to train that much to improve their sensitivity to these anabolic stimuli. So it's not like these people need three grams per kilo per day just to get a basic anabolic response. They will probably, again, do fine if we're over that, say, 1.2-ish bottom end of that range, especially if they're physically active because that'll sensitize you to this stuff. So I would way prefer people get active and uh, have a more practical target to get that will get them the overwhelming majority of the benefit there is to be had from increasing dietary protein without necessarily sweating getting over 1.6, given that that difference in effect is pretty small and only going to be really cared about or uh, felt by a very tiny of a highly motivated training population. Yeah. I mean, the average intake of protein in the United States is right around that 1.0 grams per kilo per day that for adults. Um, and so we're, we're pretty close. So we're talking maybe like an extra half serving or something like that of protein or an extra whole serving at some meals. And so that's a pretty simple, easy, you know, kind of bump to get somebody's protein up to this minimum or whatever. But yeah, the bigger lever to pull is obviously going to be training. Now, if you're listening to this, cause you're listening to the barbell medicine podcast and you're like, wow, but I am interested in all the gains. Are you saying I should lower my protein? Like for me going from 1.6 to 1.2 is going from 150 grams of protein a day to 112 grams of protein per day as a 95 kilo person. I'm not going to do that. Uh, not because I think like, you know, I'm going to, I would wither away at 112 grams per day or be ultimately catabolic. But I do think that there is enough evidence out there suggesting a potential benefit for a person like me for a higher protein intake. I agree and will admit that some of that uh, evidence is mechanistic in that it relies on like a nitrogen balance type study rather than le- actual lean b- body mass outcomes. Although there are some lean body mass outcome papers out there, uh, they're just done in a shorter term than I actually care about. So like, I don't really care what happens in 12 weeks. I care what happens in a year, two years, three years. And unfortunately that study has not yet been done. That said, I do not think there are any benefits to, for me personally, from lowering my protein intake from 150 to 112, my personal protein target each day is 180 grams. I'm not going to lower it 70 grams to 110, 112, whatever, uh, for 1.2 grams uh, per kilo per day, because I don't think there's a health benefit in there. If the health benefit was super significant, I might consider otherwise, but we're not saying that lowering your protein intake it will improve your health. Yeah. It's also not hard for you to hit that target. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but for a lot of patients who may be consuming a super low amount, it's like if if getting up to 1.6 is going to double or even triple their daily requirements, it may be impractical, not feasible, they may not be willing to do it, but if I can get them to 1.2 and more importantly get them active and training, I'm like way I'm perfectly satisfied with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just yeah. at that point you're you're thinking like this is good enough. Yes. Uh, from the protein intake, and we don't really need to like focus on all the behavioral change and resources allocate resource allocation, et cetera, to get somebody over 1.6. And the more it's active like, I can get you, the more sensitive you're going to be to the protein I do get in you. You know, whichever way that is. Yeah, just a quick note on the anabolic resistance. When Austin's saying like, yeah, you just a little bit more act- activity kind of eliminates or uh, attenuates this mm-hmm. anabolic resistance. We're talking about like a walk. Like going for a a simple walk uh, tends to eliminate or at least attenuate the majority of any anabolic resistance that older individuals or individuals with some chronic disease kind of see. And that's due to a whole bunch of different factors, whether it's increased blood flow, whether it's increased just sensitivity to amino acids, et cetera. All that stuff seems to happen. Um, And so the anabolic resistance stuff, 
I, I would be okay saying that maybe we overplayed our hand based on the evidence that we had at the time. I mean, you know, new stuff emerges and we kind of update our priors. And that's just where we're at. But I, I mean, anabolic resistance is still a thing. Yeah, just for sure. Probably, uh, it's certainly less applicable to people listening to this. And then likely the clients or patients that you end up seeing, unless they are very sick, very detrained. The people that I see in the hospital. Correct, <laughs> for whom yes. it's a big issue. Yeah, for sure. Insufficiently active. Yes. Older yeah, per- yeah. people, insufficiently active. They want to take in 1.4 grams, 1.6 grams of protein per kilo per day. Hey, knock yourself out. Uh, from a health standpoint, though, because again, I just want to make it very clear. What, what would be the point of somebody lowering their protein intake? Like, is there, is there, is that what we're, we're, we're talking about here? Lo, you know, oh, we're lowering the minimums for, from a health benefit. Is that, is that what we're talking about? We're mainly lowering the, the threshold just to summarize from a practicality standpoint for the target population that we're, that we're addressing and discussing here. And with the feeling that the overwhelming majority of benefit there is to be had from dietary protein in an active population can be achieved at that threshold um, with relatively small slash marginal, you know, incremental benefits to getting over 1.6, which is probably only worth doing for people who are super highly motivated and like care enough to do that. Yep. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, let's talk about risk for, for a second. Let's talk about risk from dietary protein. So previously, we basically made the claim based on existing evidence that uh, this higher level, significantly higher than the RDA's recommendation of 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, was said, hey, look, you got healthy kidneys. Go off, King. Like it just, <laughs> you can have this much protein. And in fact, we did another podcast on these maybe sort of updated thinking in the chronic kidney disease uh, field about dietary protein intake. I'll link that in the description below. Uh, but one question remains. It's like, Hey man, I've been hearing a lot of bad stuff about this animal protein. What's the deal? Like, can I have all of my protein from animal sources or like, is it worth replacing some of that with plant proteins or do I need to really micromanage this? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's, there's a fair amount of, uh, I would say a body of research on this topic. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about nutrition science in other podcast episodes and articles on our website with our buddy Alan Flanagan before in terms of the um, kind of pros and cons and, and nuances of interpreting this kind of field of research, the things that are unique about it as a science, um, the value of things like long-term, you know, prospective cohort studies and things like that. So that's kind of one of the when the editor came to us on this particular topic, he had found a couple papers that were pro- that he thought might be relevant to the question. And one of them was this paper by Nagshi um, and colleagues in the uh, BMJ in, in 2020, um, which was titled Dietary Intake of Total Animal and Plant Proteins and Risk of All-Cause Cardiovascular and Cancer Mortality, Systematic Review and Dose Response, Meta-Analysis of Prospective Cohort Studies. So what does all that gibberish mean? They just looked at protein intake and tried to break it down between animal and plant protein or overall protein. And how did that impact people's risk of death, their heart disease and uh, cancer related death? That's kind of the variables that they were looking at. So they had pulled together about 31 studies. And I think a fraction of that, about 21 of them had enough data um, for them in terms of like looking at the highest versus the lowest categories of protein intake in order for them to, to analyze. And ultimately, this led to a very large number of subjects included in this overall study and a lot of people as a result who died in the course of this study which um, is something that will allow them to do this analysis and and the bottom line of this because we're not going to do a full study breakdown in this uh, particular podcast but the bottom line was they did not find significant associations between total protein or animal protein for any of these um, mortality outcomes i.e causes of death but there are some some caveats to it, and I think it's worth putting this particular paper since it was pulled and brought to our attention in the context of some of the other uh, data in this space. Um, you know, we have talked before on other podcasts about how um, there are issues with studies that purport to compare high versus low intakes of things, and it's always important to specifically look at what is the actual high amount and what is the actual low amount. We've talked about this multiple times before in the context of cardiovascular disease research, saturated fat intake, because of how easy it is to find papers that say, look, high versus low doesn't have any impact on heart disease risk. And it's like, well, what was high and what was low? If both of those were below the threshold for risk, then we're not going to see any effect, right? Or if both of the both high and low are above the threshold, then we're also not going to see any effect. We need to cross this kind of threshold of effect that, that's observed. And so there's some similar 
findings here. There are some of the papers that you know compared 11% of protein uh, of, uh, from uh, from animal sources versus 4%, and most of that was from fish, and then and then other sources that were like 20% versus 9%, and most of it was from animal meat. And so, lumping a lot of these things together can kind of uh, wash out a little bit of your ability to detect. Uh, some of these effects when you, when you lump some of these things together. So um, putting together some of these things that did not necessarily have super neat and uh, similar high versus low stratifications can be a bit of an issue. One interesting finding from this study was that they found that uh, whereas they did not find an, an, inter, an association between overall protein intake and animal protein for any cause of death, they found that actually there was an, an inverse association with plant protein uh, sources and and all cause mortality or or you know death from from any cause, meaning that for each additional three percent of calories per day from plant proteins, they found associated with a five percent reduction in death from from any cause. It's worth pointing out to the extent we're going to dive into this that a lot of the the weight for that finding came from two out of two of the studies out of the. 21 or so that they ended up analyzing but when when we look <laughs> when we look uh, when we look at other research in this space um, you know in terms of what is the how, how can we stratify the health impacts of various types and sources of protein we got into this a bit in the science of red meat article on the website and the associated podcast we did with it where very clear very consistent evidence that consuming high amounts of processed red meat um, on a regular basis, which it doesn't even take all that much, a dose of approximately over 50 grams per day or so seems to pretty reliably increase health risks. And that informs a bunch of public health recommendations and things like that. And for further detail on that, that, that article will be helpful. Um, and then unprocessed red meat at modest intakes, um, there's again, different studies on this with different thresholds, but you know, up to around hundred grams per day or so doesn't really seem to have a clear harmful effect on health. At much higher doses um, on a regular basis, there does seem to be some effect on increasing health risks. Um, and then there's not really clear evidence of risk between uh, poultry intake, fish intake, and cause of death and, and death from any cause. And there is a consistent inverse, again, association between plant proteins such that increasing plant protein intake seems to um, confer a lower risk of, of death and, and uh, disease from, from, uh, from any cause. And so that's kind of like the broader literature and then this particular paper that was brought to our attention. And so I think that, you know, when you quoted the the text such that we ended up, you know, recommending that people bias their protein intake towards plant, fish, dairy sources, if you want to consume animal meats, poultry, and then if you want to consume unprocessed red meats, probably on the, you know, moderate side of intake. And if you want to consume a bunch of that, I think that you can probably do your best to mitigate risk by cranking up other sources of dietary fiber, fruits and vegetables, things like that, which, you know, in some in some data sets seem to um, attenuate the risk conferred by high amounts of, you know, red meat intake in the diet. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I think we're seeing a lot of obviously like not only food matrix effects. So like the food is greater than the sum of its parts, right? We're not just talking about protein, but there's other micronutrients, lipids, that sort of stuff. And then, you know, in general, people eat a lot of plant matter their calorie intake tends to be significantly lower. Vegans on average eat about 600 calories less per day. Vegetarians eat on average a little bit uh, less than 400 calories per day than their omnivorous counterpart counterparts. So there are a bunch of different things going on here. But yeah, I mean, I think take home here is like, yeah, we can lower that sort of minimum protein intake to about 1.2 grams per kilo per day for the broad population. If you're trying to quote unquote optimize, even though again, we don't like that term, yeah, 1.6, no, no real change there. And if you're really concerned about where you're getting your protein from, um, from a health perspective, uh, yeah, I would bias that towards plant, fish, dairy, and other unprocessed animal uh, products, particularly uh, uh, poultry, and a moderate, again, amount of unprocessed red meats. And that's, you know, we're talking like four to five ounces a day, maybe, right? So if you're on that carnivore tip, I don't, I don't know how that comports with a health promoting dietary pattern from many different levels, but just from a red meat exposure, probably not the move. Uh, but if you are doing that <laughs> then or something like that, it's red meat heavy, even though it's all unprocessed and you're like, oh, it's grass fed and what, you know, these are my cows or whatever. You're going to have to have a lot of dietary fiber and like, you know, really control for total energy intake and whatever. And will that get you? 90% of the way there, 80, I don't know that, I don't know that answer. Yeah, maybe, uh, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I would just prefer that 
the majority of your protein comes from plant, fish, dairy, poultry, unprocessed foods in general. And then if you're going to have red meat, it's got to be, you know, it should be ideally uh, relatively infrequent. You know, if you're eating big steaks every day, I don't know that that's the best way path towards health. And I can tell you that based on the existing literature, it doesn't really matter where you get your protein intake from with respect to gains, as long as you're getting enough of it. And mm-hmm. so I think this yeah. thought like eat steak, get gains, it's like, mm, you can have a steak, but you know, it's not necessarily any better for gains than other food. So do you think that your principal, you know, or typical dietary protein sources have shifted at all over the years yes. or like what, yeah, what would you say you've done? So this may surprise listeners at home. I have one meal per day that has animal meat in it, uh, not necessarily animal products. So like I started with eggs, for example, um, and so I'm getting protein from eggs and egg whites and some cheese. Uh, I'm Then I'm having uh, Greek yogurt, uh, and then I'm having uh, another meal with um, either a whey protein shake or more Greek yogurt. And then my last meal of the day typically has chicken or fish. And that's if I'm preparing all the food in my, in my home, if I'm eating out, I'll either, you know, if it's, I'm eating out and I plan on doing that once or twice a week, it's probably red meat. It's probably red meat. But before I would definitely buy and prepare more red meat at home. And now I don't buy it. Not because Mm -hmm. I don't like it. Look, it is tasty. (laughs) It is tasty. And if there's a big event in my house and I'm grilling or whatever, yeah, it's going to be red meat, but it's just, it's once a week you know, yeah. once or twice a week. And if it's more than that, I, I try to I mitigate in other fa- in other ways. But, you know, the, my overall dietary pattern tends to be not as meat focused and certainly not as red meat focused as it once was. Um, not because I'm like super petrified of like eating meat or find it disgusting or whatever. It's just, I, knowing this, I cannot <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wrap my brain around <laughs> eating red meat every single day. Yeah. Um, yeah. If there were gains to be had though, <laughs> maybe yep so again overall dietary pattern still king here uh that should be no, a surprise to absolutely no one listening to this and again all the studies and reference articles that we talked about there will be linked in the description below okay austin are you ready for this you want to take a big deep sigh make some dad noises over there just to here we go again kind of feel <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna talk about musculoskeletal injury baby musculoskeletal injury people want to know what are the real risks of musculoskeletal injury from resistance training? So again, this seemed to be from a, uh, I guess somebody emailed our editor or emailed up to date and was like, yeah, but what about with all this axial loading? So weight bearing activity, can it cause herniated discs? Which, and I was like, wait, what? They got that question? Cause that sounds like a question I would get on like an ask me anything I did on Instagram or whatever, you know, it's like, um, Okay, so that's, I think, what the question was, but you kind of went, did a deeper dive into, like, total injury risk from resistance training. As much as, I mean, as much as it was feasible, I think that this is a topic where, you know, we've we've tried to address this before to varying levels of, of satisfaction, <laughs> because I think that, you know, it's really difficult to study this in a super consistent, rigorous way, and, and everybody's training is going to be different, and the the, the, the person who is trying to do the training, they're like, a, you know, there's there's so much variability between people in their risk factors for injury and, and all sorts of things that are occurring in the gym, occurring outside of the gym, that it makes it actually super, super difficult to get excellent data on this. Not to mention, as we've talked about before, the whole issue of like, defining what is an injury, <laughs> which yeah, is the yeah. whole thing, you know? Yeah. So, so I, this is why I, I just don't love this topic. Um, and, and I, and, you know, I think that what I tried to convey, uh, was a degree of, of reassurance based on the data that we have that, um, you know, if we're, if we're dealing with clinicians, if we're dealing with doctors, they are supposedly, theoretically, very used to thinking in terms of potential risks and potential benefits of the interventions that they recommend to their patients, be it, you know, medications or, or you know, surgeries or, or whatever else. And trying to frame it through that lens, I think, is probably the best way to communicate this kind of thing to other clinicians, because they may view, they may think that, if I put a weight on a patient's back, the risk of disc herniation and like permanent disability is so high that it exceeds the potential benefit for them. And they should probably just like walk instead. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a relatively, you know, trivial thing to, you know, uh, uh, knock over th- <laughs> argument to, to, to refute. And that was basically the bar that I was trying to clear was to convince these other clinicians that it is very likely that the potential benefits of getting your patients to engage in a de- modest degree of resistance exercise in accordance with the physical activity guidelines, which are not saying that everybody should become competitive powerlifters doing one RMs at 10 on the platform, mm-hmm. right? Just 
two days a week, mo- you know, moderate intensity, muscle strengthening activities involving the whole body. Cool. Um, that the potential benefits of doing that uh, likely exceed the risks of musculoskeletal injury in general, and probably of disc herniation in particular, since that was the source of the question. Does that make yeah. sense as far as how I thought about it and approaching it? Yeah, yeah. It's like like you said, it's just a much lower bar to to kind of clear and then also uh, address, right? Rather than like, here's what an injury is. Here's yeah, what yeah, technique yeah. is. Here's what all the... <laughs> okay, okay. So we're basically trying to convince other physicians that, yeah, you're not going to increase your, pa- your patient's risk of either worsening a disc herniation, generating a disc herniation, some other sort of bad outcome from engaging in this level of resistance training. And in fact, the benefits significantly outweigh those non-zero risks. Look, there's non-zero risks to every sort of choice in life. Um, you know, the risks of resistance training are, as you said, not perfectly described uh, from, you know, in the literature. But we know, for example, in men, that one uh, in about two and a half million people, uh, men in particular, who start an exercise program will have an adverse major cardiac event. And in women, it's about one in every three and a half million. That's not zero. It's, it, you know, there are risks. But in this case, we're talking about uh, musculoskeletal injuries. So how did you frame this? And I, it is funny, though, as I saw that you went back to the 2008 physical activity guideline uh, scientific report. So, you know, almost 15 years ago, 14 years yeah. ago. And it's like, yo, this has been in there for a minute. Right, right. Yeah. So, so I mean, we've, we have established that injury is a pretty commonly cited concern around exercise in general from like qualitative research into this topic among patients, general population, clinicians, etc. And so it's a relatively common barrier that people experience when it comes to making decisions around participation in exercise in general and resistance training in, in particular. And so common concerns might be like an experience back pain, herniated disc, as it was raised in this question, or is this going to exacerbate or accelerate arthritis because, you know, wear and tear using your joints, things like that, uh, tendinopathy, other soft tissue disorders, and things like that. And so, you know, I think that if anybody who's listening to this and hopefully has listened to some of our previous content on this or, or read it can can understand and appreciate that most exercise-related injuries are multifactorial, meaning due to the confluence of a perfect storm of multiple factors. Um, oftentimes, we say sometimes shit happens, like things just just happen and, 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 and there's not always a clear, consistent explanation for it. Whereas other times when we assess the person, what they were trying to do, it might have been a super novel activity. It may have been a super high dosage of activity compared to what they're used to. It may have been them still trying to push the envelope in the setting of a whole bunch of life stressors and poor sleep and and, and other things that we know can increase the risk of injury. Um, and it may be a, 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 an activity that was done in a in an inherently injurious context. That means like contact sports, for example, which are known and very clearly, uh, uh, you know, higher risk for injury than all non-contact sports. And so, yeah, I went back to the 2008 physical activity guidelines. The reason why was because their scientific report actually did a really detailed, uh, you know, assessment of injury risk as it related to a bunch of different activities. I did find a distinct lack of that kind of an analysis on strength training in particular, but they had a ton of, you know, detailed analysis and data on injury risk as it related to a variety of, you know, aerobic and, and conditioning type activities. And by the time they got to the more recent ones that we often cite in 2018, they were like, eh, we, we put in the work back in 2008. See that report. See and so that, that one. <laughs> so, but there was one paragraph that I found in it that I liked. Um, it said that the risk of activity-related injury is related directly to a person's usual amount of physical activity. And when individuals increase their amount of activity, an injury risk relates to the size of this increase. As a result, prescribing a dosage of physical activity relative to the individual's habitual level of activity and progressing this gradually provides the strongest modifiable target for managing injury risk. And I think that that's something that should sound familiar to folks. It's something that we generally try to practice in accordance with this. Now, can people crank up their injury, their, their, uh, their training load and not experience injury? Yes, people do that all the time. So this is not like a guaranteed, highly reliable relationship. Like there's tons of individual variation, but I think that it's reasonable to say that to the extent that we can modify somebody's injury risk, probably managing their training dosage, which is kind of how we conceptualize this relative to their habitual level of 
training, their their baseline fitness level, those should be effectively kind of commensurate. And these are topics and, and concepts that we've talked about on a bunch of different podcasts relating to, you know, progressive loading, training dosage. I think we have a couple podcasts by that title, uh, various injury risk things in the past. And that's how we think about it when we're working with people who are experiencing pain or injury and trying to help them rehab is trying to find the dose um, of activity and the kind of activity, although usually that's something that is generally in the ballpark of what they already like to do, trying to find a dosage of activity that they can tolerate and then progressing that from there to get people rehabbed. And so it's a similar approach to prescribing training in general. Would yeah. you agree with all that so far? Yeah, you can't modify somebody's luck, right? It just, <laughs> you know, it, it's, yeah. it is what it is. You, you can't really modify their environment. So the things that are occurring in their life outside of the gym, whether that be stress related, whether that, you know, and that can span everything from interpersonal stress to, you know, their nutrition, their sleep, et cetera. Like all of these things, you know, you don't necessarily have control over, but you do have control over the actual, you know, programming, uh, the exercise dose in this case. And so, yeah, I would agree that this is the strongest modifiable target. Now, somebody out there is thinking, well, what about their technique? What about their technique? We got to adjust their technique. Look, listen up. Listen the (laughs) F up. When you go look for a definition of good technique in the literature that is accepted, you will not find one. In fact, when you look for any definition of good technique in the literature, all you find is this definition from a 2009 systematic review of resistance training safety, which said proper technique includes performing the exercise with the correct speed and resistance in the appropriate plane of movement and within the optimal joint range of motion to maximize adaptations and minimize the risk of injury. This is just circular. uh, It is so (laughs) circular. It's like, yo, like if you do it, (laughs) <laughs> to maximize adaptations and minimize risk of injury, you're going to minimize the risk of injury and man- and maximize adaptations. Like, no shit. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> the point the point is, and this goes back to the quote of the, from the paragraph. It's like, look, if somebody is not used to loading their body, moving their body, stressing their body in a particular way at a particular dose, and you send it all the way to RPE 10, that is your recommendation. That is a modifiable risk that you are really pushing and probably not worth the risk in that case because we know that you can get a substantial benefit by doing much much less and that's kind of where you took this the the rest of these recommendations it's like look man we're not telling anybody to go out and do a one rm we're not telling everybody to go from zero to 100 real quick like drake we're saying look start wherever the person is and then gradually progress from there and it's really not going to be that much And the data we do have on injury risk says, hey, look, this stuff happens relatively infrequently. When it does happen, they tend to be self-limiting, resolve on their own, non-catastrophic, non-severe, don't require medical attention. And then, oh, by the way, on top of that, the benefits from engaging in this level of resistance training, this strength training, are crazy big. Which we just enumerated in the other up-to-date article where we went through like every organ system, every disease process that we had evidence for and said, here's all the ways that it can help your patient. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here's the most interesting thing that I found with respect to injury risk. Because I think if you made the argument to me like, hey, look, if you're going to load some tissues, you're going to load a person, give them any sort of exercise dose, that is likely to create a non-zero risk that is greater than the risk of remaining sedentary. But then, you know, you just go see, hey, are there any studies on this that like prospective trials? And oh, yes, there is a 2012 study by Campbell et al. Basically took 200 previously sedentary adults, put 100 people on 360 minutes per week of aerobic training, and the other group, nothing. So they remained sedentary. The injury rates were the exact same between the sedentary (laughs) individuals and the people doing six hours of conditioning per week. Six hours. That's and that was over a year. The study was twelve months, and it's like well, maybe I need to rethink that because because again I'm thinking like all right should people deadlift instead of doing some sort of machine based exercise right because okay the machine's fixed in particular planes and then maybe the deadlift you know represents some sort of unique uh, potential injury risk because you're loading all of these tissues uh, and it's like I don't I don't think you can make that argument like I I, I think. Just because you're loading them doesn't necessarily increase the risk, provided the dose is on is on point, which we say that all the time. And further, the risk of not training these things likely exposes you to some additional risk if called upon to do something in your day to day life. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that the benefit is that you know for the 
for health targets, which is the intent of this article, there health. are so many ways that you can go about resistance training. And so yeah. if you are a clinician who says, you know, I don't buy it that, you know, putting a weight on, on any patient in some way is going to increase their risk more than I'm willing to allow for whatever reason, then fine. There are other ways to confer resistance upon your human patient uh, that will likely um, also confer the majority of health benefits that there are to be had uh, by doing this. Like we've talked about before, there's nothing magic about a deadlift for, uh, you know, lowering your blood pressure compared to, you know, sure. um, training a, a similar amount of muscle mass with similar volume in another way. So you get to choose. That's the cool thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the only like little thing that bothers me is like, yeah, but what if you got to pick something up off the floor and you've <laughs> never exposed yourself to that? Yeah. And you happen to have some bad luck. Might be worth having a little deadlift history of some sort. Sure. Maybe it's yeah. a kettlebell. Maybe it's barbell. Maybe it's dumb. I mean, whatever. Maybe. But then again, maybe not. Because maybe your <laughs> unluckiness <laughs> yeah, supersedes yeah. that training history. Yep. All right. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the musculoskeletal injury risk discussion that you wanted probably, but it's the one you deserve because that's, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. that's how we think about it. All right, moving on. We're going to talk about migraines. First off, what is a migraine? A migraine is an episodic disorder typically involving a unilateral throbbing headache that can last several several hours to several days and can be associated with other symptoms such as nausea, visual or sensory changes, light or sound sensitivity, among many others. It's one of the most common complaints encountered by primary care physicians and neurologists in a day-to-day -day practice. Uh, physical activity can trigger a migraine in some individuals. Uh, Although habitual and regular physical activity exposure can have a preventative effect on migraine. However, whether any particular kind of exercise is better than another has not been figured out until recently. So, uh, Baraki, how does strength training affect migraines? This one was pretty interesting. Um, this paper, I forget how exactly it came across my desk, but it was a 2022 systematic review. Do you have a desk? I'm sitting at my desk right now. No, I come on. You know what I'm saying? Do you have like an office with a desk and like at the hospital? I do. But yes. oh, okay. Somebody just throws like a somebody paper at you. <laughs> somebody yeah. comes in, throws a paper at you and says thoughts. And you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, another paper on my desk. Yeah. So this was a, um, a pretty recent paper, a systematic review and what's called a network meta-analysis, which again, I don't, I would not claim for us to be the statistician experts to explain this in great detail for everybody. However, I've talked about, um, I think I talked about one other network meta-analysis in the past that looked at, compared a whole bunch of different interventions for osteoarthritis. This was probably a year or two ago that, that I went over that. And so basically this is a way by which um, they will pull a whole bunch of different studies together and through their statistical you know, trickery can end up setting up um, various head-to-head -head comparisons um, among different interventions um, or placebo, even if they were not directly compared head-to-head, -head, you know, in in the trials that are being included. That's a very, very, very generalized uh, kind of overview of the the concept. Um, and so, in this in this paper, they looked at 21 different controlled trials of various interventions being uh, used to prevent migraine or to you know to to reduce. Uh, the risk of recurring migraine, because this tends to be a chronic ongoing, you know, recurring disorder. And so they looked at various kinds of uh, exercise compared with placebo. And then there are also a couple medications that were incorporated here as well, because there are certain meds that patients can get put on um, that we call prophylactic medicines, which just means a medicine that's used to, you know, reduce the risk of, you know, recurrence or to re reduce how many headache episodes a patient has per month, say. Um, and so in this, in this uh, network meta-analysis they did, they actually found that strength training uh, appeared to have the largest effect um, with about, on average, about 3.5 fewer mean monthly migraine uh, days um, compared to the, the alternatives. Uh, although the the confidence intervals in this uh, in this analysis are relatively wide, but all of these that I'm citing here had you know met statistical significance. And so um, after strength training, which again seemed to have the largest largest effect, uh, the next largest was high intensity aerobic exercise, which was about 3.1 fewer. Month, mean monthly migraine days, followed by moderate intensity aerobic. So we have strength training, then high intensity aerobic, then moderate intensity aerobic exercise. Um, and then after that was topiramate, which is a very typical, it's called Topamax. Uh, probably some listeners right now are like, hey, I take 
pyramid, be it for migraine, be it for weight loss, be it for you know certain other things um, that that it can be used for, and then placebo, and then amitriptyline was actually worse than that, which is another common <laughs> common super medicine. common the, the tricyclic uh, antidepressant that's also used for you know sleep and pain and certain mood things and a whole variety of issues. It's not my favorite medication uh, by any means. And so the other thing they uh, the the other thing that's worth pointing out is there wasn't a, a relationship between the specific muscles targeted in strength training. So, you know, you could make an argument that, hey, for people who have headache, maybe they're, you know, you'll hear this a lot. They're quote unquote, carrying a lot of tension in their neck or their shoulders or whatever the case. And so it's like, do they need to train those areas? Does that help? And it's like, nah, doesn't seem to be the case. So um, you can, you can do effectively any kind of strength training, any kind of exercise, be it strength, high intensity aerobic, moderate intensity aerobic, as we have recommended before, we prefer a combination of these to meet the physical activity guidelines. And that seems to have a pretty robust effect on reducing the risk of uh, recurrent migraine, potentially exceeding the effect of some common medicines. There are a bunch of other medicines that were not included here that are often used as well for migraine prophylaxis. But um, but I think that you know there's been this interesting observation before of like, okay, so for some people, uh, physical activity can be a trigger for them. I do wonder, I would be more interested now maybe to like have conversations with patients who report that physical activity or exercise is a migraine trigger and try to get a sense of like what their habitual physical activity is like, because maybe they don't do very much or, you know, uh, by, by any means. And then when they do try to go do something, maybe they're doing too much and that sets it off. And maybe there's a way to kind of manage it like a rehab sort of situation where we work them up to some, you know, manageable level. And that may end up having a preventative benefit over time. Or maybe not. Maybe there are some people for whom it is a very consistent, reliable thing, and they're you know dis effectively disabled by it, which would be unfortunate. But I think that would remain remain to be seen how that plays out. You know, for patients who specifically report that. But I think even for people who don't specifically report that as a trigger, I think that you know this is not something that you know for for patients who I have worked with who have migraines. Um, while I would traditionally address exercise with them like I would anyone else and try to discuss, you know, how we can get up to those guidelines and things like that. I think that I have not typically framed it through the lens of potential, you know, potentially modifying their experience with, with migraines, which um, is a pretty powerful lever in that kind of a conversation. If you have frequent, you know, very frustrating, very painful, potentially disabling migraines where you have to take off of work or school or makes you feel ill or whatever the case is, sometimes people have very complex, very bizarre migraine symptoms that land them in the hospital, which I've, which I've seen before. It's like, if I had lifestyle interventions, i.e. side effect free things, unlike some of these medicines like amitriptyline, a lot of side effects. Um, whereas these other things, the side effects of these, uh, you know, exercise modalities are positive, beneficial in general. Um, they can benefit a whole bunch of other things. And, and oftentimes people who have migraine, they may have other conditions. They may have obesity. They may have high blood pressure. They may have sleep apnea. They may have all sorts of things that can also benefit from this. So I think that the bottom line is just, I would, I will probably moving forward, you know, leverage this conversation around habitual, regular physical activity um, in this kind of order of preference, so to speak, although again, I want a combination, may have more of an effect than you thought on reducing your risk or, or preventing um, uh, migraines um, even more potently than certain meds, maybe, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. When I read this, I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, of note, uh, because we do get a lot of questions on this, people were like, I just got a headache during exercise. Uh, so the current guidelines suggest that if someone has a new headache during exercise and they've never been evaluated for headaches before, that they should have an evaluation, which does include brain imaging. So that might be an MRI, it might be a CT, it might be both. Um, I remember I brought this up to you maybe like a year ago or two years ago and you're like, what? Uh, look, man, International Headache Society, that, yeah. that's a recommendation. Um, and this is particularly true if the individual is over the age of 40. If the headache is lasting for hours, if it's associated with vomiting or focal, so localized neurological findings, so particular neurological signs, yeah, um, all obviously, those things would definitely get me to do imaging. Hundred percent. <laughs> but but I I think you know um, it's not unusual for people to have their first headache with exercise, and if you've never been worked up before, that may be worth pursuing. And I think that's what the guidelines are kind of getting at, rather than like, oh, it's just exercise. And it's like, yeah, yeah, well. That maybe it may it may be unmasking something that you might want to know about. Sure, you you check out. 
Yep. Yeah. So definitely would see a doctor. Uh, and then if they're not aware of the current International Head, uh, Headache Society guidelines, you can tell them you found it here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, episode 203. Refer them to this timestamp and uh, – I don't know. Maybe maybe they'll maybe they'll go from there. Uh, we've also linked those uh, guidelines in the description below. All right, last topic, and this is this is the bane of my existence. I hate this. I hate that this exists. Yeah, same. So we were tasked with coming up with some objective strength targets, with the idea being that if you were a clinician promoting strength training, resistance training at large to your patients, that you should be able to give them some sort of target. Get this strong, and then you. Have you know Pasco collect two hundred dollars? You you've effectively become strong enough to mitigate any potential health risk from not being strong enough. And I'm like, where am I going to find that data? Because that data most certainly does not exist. Uh, but this is a paper. In 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 a way, just to pause you for a second. I mean, there are strength thresholds that have been correlated with risk of mortality and things like that. But as you know, we've discussed here, as you'll point out, a lot of that's based on very easy to use convenient strength metrics for research like hand grip strength and so then the question the concern is like okay if we give people like hand grip strength targets then they're just going to tell their patients to go train their their hand grip which sure. is not the idea here it's supposed to be not something that training your grip directly is what confers the mortality benefit but that it is a proxy a surrogate for whole overall quote unquote whole body strength whatever that means sure yeah i mean so yeah we know that there are multiple large observational data sets finding that higher levels of muscular strength and power correlate with improved health outcomes. The problem is that most of these data sets uh, use the hand grip test and, you know, then follow their patients for a short period of time, a few years, you know, at, at the, for the longest ones. And most of the subjects that they test are over the age of 65. So while this is like cool data, particularly if you're like a strength nerd like us, we're like, yeah, see, strength being strong is cool. It's like, yeah, well, how does this apply to people under the age of 65, how does this translate to non-hand grip sort of proxies for total body strength? And is hand grip test even like a good one to use? Because it's just small muscles of the hand. And it's like, I could imagine many situations where people are going to have like this crushing grip, but all, you know, maybe sarcopenic otherwise. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So in any case, we, we're trying to suss out like, does getting stronger actually improve health or is it just like oh if you're already this strong like you have a reduced risk so that's question number one like does getting stronger actually improve health versus like having a level of strength preventing you from like getting a particular disease and we know new two new recent large systematic reviews and meta-analysis uh have come out suggesting that yes getting stronger actually does improve health outcomes so one is related to blood pressure, and the other one is related to hemoglobin A1C, which is, again is a measure of average blood sugar levels over about three months, um, and that is a common test ordered in individuals uh, who are either being tested for diabetes or who have type two diabetes. So, in any case, these two uh, recent systematic reviews found a dose response relationship between strength gain and improvements in resting blood pressure and hemoglobin A1C. They both lowered them, and in fact, so it looked like the stronger that people got, the lower their resting blood pressure became, and the lower or their hemoglobin A1C uh, became. Uh, effectively, uh, those who did not improve their strength at all or who did so to a smaller degree had less significant reductions in blood pressure and their hemoglobin A1C. It, it's possible that there are overlapping mechanisms here that contribute to both strength and health improvements. So basically, if these processes uh, are involved in both, maybe they you know are contributing uh, to each one. Uh, one thought here is that uh, effectively you're using all of this energy and resources to like get stronger and improve. Uh, and that basically, uh, allocates less energy to some inflammatory processes. And that's something I talked about with Ponser, Herman Ponser on uh, our podcast, which I linked that in the description below. When you guys go to the description, you're going to see like boom data. And so if you're like, <laughs> I'm want to geek out on some science, I got some time off because it's the holidays go wild, go off. Like it's, it's all in there. Um, so in any case, that seems to answer question one, does getting stronger actually improve health or is like being strong sort of this artifact of being healthy? So yeah, it does appear that actually getting stronger can improve health outcomes. So boom, qu answered that question. And so now we need to know like, well, how strong though? How strong is strong enough? So an attempt to quantify the relationship 
between levels of absolute or relative strength and an individual's health trajectory. This study, I believe, was from a data set collected over about 20 years. Um, it's a study of 8,762 men aged 20 to 82, and they were followed up for an average of 19 years. They basically found that men in the upper tertiles, which is a third, of strength performance were associated with the lowest risk of all-cause, cardiovascular, and cancer-related mortality. And their absolute, or sorry, their relative strength levels, so relative to body weight, were as follows. They used the leg press to assess lower body strength, and they used the bench press uh, for upper body strength, which, by the way, why? Do you think... <laughs> They must have just had that in the exercise science lab, just a bench Instead press. Instead of a chest press machine. Instead of a chest yeah. press. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're yeah. like, ah, you guys could bench. It's fine. Yeah. And I, I do wonder if it was on a Smith machine. I wouldn't like, be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. That would seem smarter for research purposes. Sure. Yes. Okay. So in any case, the people in the upper tertile had an average leg press one rep max of 1.9 times body weight. Uh, and then... For the bench press, they had an average uh, bench press of 1.1 times their body weight. And those individuals, again, seem to have the be best overall health trajectory with respect to all-cause cardiovascular and cancer-related mortality. Better than individuals who are still stronger than those in the lowest third. Um, but then individuals in the middle third also still had a slightly reduced risk. Um, and their average strength for the leg press was 1.7 times body weight, 1RM, and a 0.9 times body weight bench press one rep max. And so this just is kind of stratified or grouping people based on their strength levels on these two exercises. Now, the problem here is like, how do I extrapolate all of that, that those two findings to every potential exercise that somebody could use to assess lower body strength and upper body strength? Like what's the correlation you between can't. leg press and yeah. squat, <laughs> leg press and deadlift, leg press yeah. and a different type of leg press? Is it on a 45 degree angle? Is it like a yeah. pendulum yeah. squat? Like you just can't, yeah. right? So I'm like, well, these things exist, so I'll write about them, but then I'll also make the caveat that I can't come up with cut points for every single exercise other than just making them up. And I do not feel comfortable making them up because I think that my bias is going to make them too high. So I just, anyway, I don't know how to extrapolate this to other exercises. And I think if I was tasked to do that, like gun to my head, I would just overestimate. Yep. So. Yeah. Um, but so that was just for men. Cause again, it was, that study was in 8,700 men. So how do we like translate this to women? And so we have a problem here because we don't have any of this data set. So we kind of got to like, it's not, we're not going to make it up all the way. We're going to make it up uh, a little bit. So we're going to see like how strong are women compared to men on average and then like come up with some numbers. So on average, women seem to be approximately 50% and 60% as strong as men in the upper and lower body exercises, respectively. Uh, when corrected for overall lean body mass, there's not really any significant differences between men and women's lower body strength performances. So if you look at the same amount of lean body mass, they can squat the same, leg press the same, leg extension the same, whatever. But the upper body strength advantage seems to persist in men, obviously to a smaller degree. It's not 50%, still like, it's like an extra 10% or so. And the thought process here is this may be due to training histories. So men traditionally doing a lot more exercise volume and paying a lot more attention to the upper body strength, and then also just muscle mass distribution. So when you actually look at studies where they ultrasound to look at like muscle cross-sectional volume in different regional areas, men just are carrying more upper body muscle mass. And so you can't really correct for lean body mass because it's not like they're not in the same area. Whereas yeah. in the legs, it's, you know, pretty, pretty much the same. So in any case, if they're 50% and 60% as strong in the, as men in the upper and lower body uh, exercises respectively, then we come up with these targets that correlate to that upper tertile, that upper third that we just talked about. So for lower body strength and the leg press, it's like a 1.14 times body weight, 1RM. And for bench press, it's a 0.55 times body weight bench press 1RM. But if somebody was like, oh, how, how confident do you feel in these numbers? I, I don't yeah. feel confident at all. Not, not very they Not just forced very. us to give them something. <laughs> they did. Yeah. So, you know, little evidence is available to translate, uh, again, all of these strength performance numbers to other exercises. Uh, so, yeah, limits our ability to provide objective strength cutoffs for all potential exercises. Still, the end recommendation is that we uh, encourage other clinicians to uh, not only encourage their patients to strength train, but also to do so in a manner that actually makes them stronger. Because it does appear that actually getting stronger by some demonstrable uh, way, shape, or form does tend to improve health trajectory. And they're probably getting close to meeting or exceeding these numbers in whatever exercise they pick. So again, I don't care if they do a leg press or a squat or a deadlift or some combination thereof or, you know, just 
get do something that trains all the major muscle groups of the body uh, and actually makes you stronger. If it doesn't make you stronger, I don't know if you're getting all of the benefits health-wise out of resistance training than you otherwise could. And I think that maybe is a missed opportunity. So it's not just enough to kind of like go through the motions and lift weights. You, you got to get stronger. Fortunately, there are many different ways to do that. And we talked about that in, I don't know, how many podcasts do you think we in have on like programming? This entire company is. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that was the update of our up-to-date article. Austin, you got any? You got anything else you want to add to this? Like any strong feelings you want to project out into the universe? Uh, I, I generally shy away from having those. So, <laughs> Do you want to read dumb tweets or you just should we wrap it up? <laughs> oh, we'll just wrap it up? All right. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, so cool. Um, this has been episode 203. This is an update of our up-to-date article. Um, really thank you guys for tuning in again, make sure you guys check out pioneer belts over at generalleathercraft.com. It is the holiday season. And if you're looking for that gift for your special, somebody who lifts, uh, in your social circle, Hey, a belt would be great. I would love to get a belt, even though I have so many belts. If somebody got me a belt, oh man. <laughs> okay. Hold on. If Lorraine's listening to this and there's a 0% chance that she's 70 minutes in, Correct. <laughs> what kind of belt? What kind of belt would you want? Because you have a 13 millimeter lever belt right now. Yeah. Yeah. Would you I want would, anything else? I would, if I were to get another one, then yeah, I mean, probably uh, if I were, then it would probably be a single prong. Yeah. I think I would prefer a, like a 10 millimeter, four inch wide uh, single prong belt just so I could have like a less stiff belt if I wanted to play around with that for like overhead press or bench press or something or something maybe more dynamic like strongman stuff because i will tell you that the powerlifting belt the 13 millimeter four inch i mean that's a hefty that's a hefty belt i like it because i'm used to it now but if i had a 10 millimeter belt maybe maybe we'll get you a tapered belt so you can wear it when you're doing curls all my to, all my snatch work yeah yeah or olympic lifts just to try to get your waist narrowed up a little bit you know that's <laughs> Anyway, yep, for all your belt needs, wrist wraps, wrist straps, whatever, head over to generalleathercraft.com. We'll link them in the description below. And again, make sure that you tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. Before you guys go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance and health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.